few weeks back, we were calling one of our segments Random Rants, because that's what it was. And you know what? Kind of like that. I think we'll have another section of Random Rants effective immediately. Let's start on the positive side with the frontline section of the Sacramento News and Review, article a couple months back by Kel Munger, titled Radiation Reality, wherein Kel got together with an expert, an actual expert on radiation, Dr. Gerald Bushberg, clinical professor of radiology at the UC Davis School of Medicine. Dr. Bushberg trained as a health and medical physicist. He specializes in the biological effects of radiation. Might be a good guy to ask a few questions of in the wake of what happened in Japan, eh? Kel asked the doctor about the general risk from ambient radiation, the stuff that's around us all the time anyway, and he noted that if there are any risks for normal levels of ambient radiation, they're too low for us to measure, at least epidemiologically. In other words, it's hard to say how many cancers are being derived from what's around us all the time. That's a hard number to get your hands on. He noted in theory, there could be a health risk from background radiation because it is ionizing radiation, which can damage DNA. However... We, you and me, biological organisms, we've got a number of systems that work to keep our DNA in good repair. Asked if we should be concerned about the fallout from radiation in Japan, Dr. Bushberg said, none of the levels that have been measured in the United States since the earthquake and tsunami have come anywhere near the action levels. That's where you basically have to do something to minimize people's exposure. He noted that uh, they have reached those levels in Japan, of course, which is why they've had to set aside some crops until the issue is resolved. He noted that while there have been some increased levels in radiation from Japan, these seem to be much lower than needed for any kind of intervention, adding there really isn't any much likelihood of radioactive iodine getting this far to the west coast of the U.S. to warrant potassium iodide tablets, which pretty much sold out in the wake of the uh, disaster in Japan. Frankly, big waste of money. Thanks to Kel Munger for trying to set the record straight on that one. We also want to thank, from the same section, front lines of the Sacramento News and Review, a horrifying article by Hugh Bigger about how some of you knuckleheads out there, and you know who you are, Take the viewpoint that you can put hot water down the sink and then you can get away with adding a little bit of grease and things will be fine. Well, no, they won't be. Noted Hugh Bigger, a monster lurks in the sewers of Sacramento, a monster of slime. The monster burps sewage on the lawns and onto streets in unexpected moments and devours millions of dollars annually from the budgets of cash-strapped local governments. For those in the know, the monster has a name, Fog. Shorthand for fats, oils, and grease. They quoted Jessica Hess, a spokeswoman for the Sacramento Department of Utilities, as saying it gives pipes a little heart attack, like plaque in an artery. Most people probably think it's okay to run it down the drain with some warm water, but if it doesn't get disposed of properly, the oils grab the sides of the pipe and solidify. And sometimes it clings to tree roots. Tree roots that are broken into the pipes. The pipe bursts and sewage pops up onto the surface fun. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you surely have appropriate containers to put grease in. An empty can, an empty pint of milk, an empty water bottle, anything. Cut your water bottle in half. Do what it takes. Put the grease in there and dispose of it properly. It will not work to put it down the drain. Frankly, I'm surprised that there are enough idiots out there that do this to cause a problem, but then I guess I, guess I shouldn't be. Surprisingly, the worst violators appear to be apartment complexes and, believe it or not, restaurants. 
which is causing this Sacramento city and various other board of supervisors to vote to install grease trapping devices and make them properly maintained and cleaned in restaurants. I'm shocked to see that that is necessary, but maybe it is. Here's one I think we talked about before, but we just need to talk about it again. Article by Ken Ellingwood and Brian Bennett in the LA Times noted that um, a report by the Global Commission on Drug Policy recommends that we give up on the drug war as a spectacular failure. Oddly enough, both the U.S. and Mexico are rejecting calls for drug legalization. Mexico, in the last something like four years, has apparently lost 38,000 people to drug-related violence. And no, we're not talking about a drunk guy that beats somebody else to death. We're talking about, like, you know, armed thugs shooting up the streets of Mexican cities. Oh, and by the way, 70% of their arms are imported from the United States. This caused cooler heads, such as former Colombian President Cesar Gaviria, a member of the panel that made the report, to, um, to note <laughs> by phone to reporters that when you have 40 years of a policy that's not bringing results, you have to ask if it's time to change it. I'm not sure that works too well in certain sectors of the U.S. For example, John F. Kennedy's embargo against Fidel Castro in Cuba has so far failed to bring down the Castro regime, although it's in its 49th year. By the way, this group that issued this report's pretty uh, pretty blue-chip panel, included former U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker, writers Carlos Fuentes, Peruvian writer Mario Vargas Llosa, and Richard Branson, founder of the Virgin Group. By the way, the U.S. government has backed the Mexican crackdown with law enforcement equipment, training, and encouraging words from President Barack Obama, which I don't think does a whole lot to bring the 38,000 people killed back to life, does it? And speaking of lunkhead politics, how about this one? Opening up a new front in the war between Republican lawmakers and unions, Maine Governor Paul LePage, a couple weeks back, ordered the removal of a 36-foot-wide mural from the state's Labor Department headquarters. LePage's office said that the 11-panel piece, which depicts scenes from Maine's labor history, including images of workers, strikes, and Rosie the Riveter, gave the impression that the state was biased against employers. The administration claimed that it had received complaints about the work from business officials and an anonymous fax declaring that the work was reminiscent of North Korean propaganda used to brainwash the masses. And I didn't realize this, but apparently you can send an anonymous fax and you can get, like, you can get murals taken down in state capitals. Who knew? The governor's office has also ordered the Labor Department conference rooms. The conference rooms, which are currently named after union figures, are to be given more neutral designations. And speaking of the Castro regime, former President Jimmy Carter went down to Cuba recently to speak with Raul Castro, as well as prominent Cuban dissidents. And, of course, relations have been rather poor in the wake of U.S. contractor Alan Gross being sentenced to 15 years in jail for providing Internet access to Jewish dissidents. I don't know how many countries in the world don't have good Internet access, but I'm guessing that after North Korea and Cuba, the world's last two communist states, the list is pretty short. Carter denied that he was there specifically to get Mr. Alan Gross out of Cuba. I did note that on his last visit in 2002, he criticized the country's lack of democracy on live television. And for that, I say, boy, Jimmy. All right, let's talk about how uh, we're all mentally ill, at least as some would have it. I was intrigued by uh, a review in New Scientist magazine of a book titled Overdiagnosed, Making People Sick in the Pursuit of Health. 
the authors of that book refer to um, what today is an epidemic of diagnosis. People don't just have diseases, they have pre-diseases, pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, pre-obesity. Noting in the face of pre-disease, otherwise healthy people seek treatment for potential ailments that show no symptoms and maybe never will. This book uh, makes it clear that if a person has symptoms, they should get a diagnosis from their doctor. And it certainly recognizes the benefits of diagnosing the silent conditions that often show no symptoms, like hypertension. But it argues against the constant changes to disease thresholds, which define more and more people as patients in need of medication or treatment. And good God, if you watch late night television, you'll find some condition which you surely have and must ask your doctor about medicine X. But they note that when in 1977 the definition of diabetes changed from fasting blood sugars of 140 milligrams per deciliter to 126, 1.6 million Americans became diabetic at the stroke of a pen. But some folks think we're just not diagnosing enough. Questions being asked are if we're missing most cases of autism. Now, autism is a real thing. Autism diagnosis is maybe something else in this correspondence opinion. There are such things as fad diagnoses. Supposedly diagnosed cases of autism have been rising steadily in the U.S., and today, one out of every 110 children in the U.S. supposedly has the disorder. Research done here at UC Davis by Irva Hertz Picciotto thinks that the evidence for DNA damage and mutation points to exposure to chemicals and toxins. Well, there may be some truth in that, and there may be some truth in the fact that we just want to diagnose everybody as being autistic, or ADD, or ADHD, or OCD, and certainly depressed. But a study cited by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and you know, can we just get rid of that phrase, and prevention? It's the Center for Disease Control, uh, took a look at 55,000 kids between the ages of 7 and 12 in a community near Seoul, South Korea. Study author Yong Shin Kim, who is a Yale University psychiatrist, said that two-thirds of the children with autism may be underdiagnosed and untreated. They think that it may be as many as one in 38 school-aged children is autistic. I got my doubts about this. They apparently used a widely accepted questionnaire for diagnosing autism spectrum disorder and found some degree of autism in 2.6% of the children. Sure, everyone's Asperger's syndrome. I think maybe it's possible that some kids are socially awkward. But I love the quote from Kim's co-author on this. If we look hard enough, cases will be found. <laughs> no argument there. But uh, the researcher Roy Richard Grinker added, these children need treatment so they can thrive. How about this uh, horrifying headline from the journal Family Practice News? ADHD drug studied for first time in five-year-olds. Yes, apparently taking a bunch of five-year-olds and testing atomoxetine showed that after eight weeks, mean total scores on the ADHD-4 rating scale were reduced significantly more in the treatment group than the placebo group. Sure, folks, I'd say put total confidence in the ADHD-4 rating scale and put all of your children on medication. A friend of mine told me a story recently where her son was recommended for ADHD uh, medication because the teacher just kept finding all of her students needed it. 
In fact, of the 17 boys in the class, 11 were already on medication, thanks to her astute bird-dogging them to appropriate psychiatrists and psychologists, and uh, my friend's son was to be the next one. She declined suspecting that the deficiencies may lie more in the teacher than the student. You know, and, and I love the uh, uh, little side quote in one of the reviews New Scientist did in a different book. This was titled The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry, which was described as a, uh, a venture into the world of shaky thinking. And it was looking at the real condition of, you know, being a psychopath. It certainly is a real phenomenon. I was curious, though, as the author decided that Although it can be thrilling to recognize in people those telltale signs of an abnormal lack of empathy, in fact, the line between a healthy and unhealthy mind can be devilishly hard to define. The author illustrated uh, how psychopaths come in a variety of guises. The uh, author, per the review, suspects that a lot of politicians and corporate executives might be more easily diagnosed with the personality disorder of being a psychopath than Tony, who is a psychiatric hospital inmate who claimed he feigned psychopathy to avoid a lengthy prison sentence, but now can't unfake it. No, <laughs> oh, I'm saying, I swear to God. Oh, yeah, prove it. But I like the punchline in the piece. It said that what the, the examples given in the book show is that psychiatric diagnoses, and these days the medications that follow, are prone to faddishness. Adding that maybe a touch of skepticism in this area would do us all some good. Here, here. If your psychologist diagnoses your kid over the phone as having ADD and starts to prescribe medications, I'd say get, uh, get some new help. But uh, actually, speaking of psychopaths, and it's not often you get to use that phrase, I've been sitting on a couple of articles for months, one from The Economist, one from New Scientist on that topic. Go quote a little bit from both of them. Note of The Economist. What makes people psychopaths is not an idle question. Prisons are packed with them. So, according to some, are boardrooms. The combination of a propensity for impulsive risk-taking with a lack of guilt and shame, the two main characteristics of psychopathy, may lead, according to circumstances, to a criminal career or a business one. The article uh, describes how Elsa Ermer and Kent Keel at the University of New Mexico probed the area of psychopathy and establish that they generally have normal levels of intelligence. They're only rarely Hannibal Lecter-like geniuses. They note also that their lack of guilt and shame does not seem to spring from a deficient grasp of what's right and wrong. If you ask a psychopath what he's supposed to do in a particular situation, he can usually give you what non-psychopaths would regard as the correct answer. It's just that he does not seem bound to act upon that knowledge. And expounding upon their study in New Scientist... The author Kent Keel describes psychopathy as a lack of empathy, guilt and remorse, callousness, impulsivity, promiscuity, hot-headedness, and pathological lying, among others. Not surprisingly, when concentrating on prisoners, they noted that uh, individuals with psychopathy have a large impact on the criminal justice system. Between 15 and 35% of prisoners in the U.S. jails meet criteria for the disorder. Not surprising. When asked why it's so important to study them, they note that in most places in the U.S., the way we treat them is to incarcerate them. We put antisocial people with antisocial peers, and guess what happens? They get more antisocial. 
adding the estimated social cost of crime in the U.S. is $2.3 trillion a year, and psychopaths are thought to be responsible for 20 to 40% of that. When asked if psychopaths like Ted Bundy are, are often likable people, Kent Keel replied, Well, most psychopaths have a glibness and a superficial charm to them. Adding, it does sometimes happen that if we don't get a chance to read a case file before we do an interview, we might walk away thinking, wow, what a nice guy. I can't believe he's in here. Because, basically, he hasn't told you the truth about anything that's happened in his entire life. Asked if all psychopaths are dangerous, he replied, no. There are probably many psychopaths out there who are not necessarily violent are leading very disruptive lives in the sense that they are getting involved in shady business deals, moving from job to job or relationship to relationship, always using resources everywhere, but never contributing. Such people inevitably leave a path of confusion and often destruction behind them. Asked how a better understanding of psychopathy is going to help us do something about it, He replied, that's exactly the question. What medicines and or therapies are likely to help? We certainly know that some forms of therapy have been shown to make psychopaths worse. Group therapy, for instance. In some studies, it's been shown to actually make psychopaths more likely to re-offend than if you didn't treat them at all. Adding, so it's critical we identify the psychopathic offenders and put them in a treatment program that is made for them. Of course, what's left out is what treatment programs are effective. I think he's going to have a hard time coming up with an answer to that one. By the way, we don't have time to talk about it today, but there's some interest uh, we've mentioned in the past of, of getting some things like magic mushrooms and LSD um, back in use to treat certain, certain conditions of mental illness. There are researchers looking at psilocybin mushrooms to help depression. Did we talk in the show, Mr. Millen, about Cary Grant being an acid head? Well, well, we'll save that one. But uh, when I was in medical school, there was a very promising drug that was being used called MDMA also known as ecstasy. Apparently, it worked very well, very well in certain instances. Naturally, it had to be stopped, although I confess to not knowing much about raves and street ecstasy. I would note a recent article from Addiction, which is a medical journal, noting that all-night ravers who take ecstasy might not be harming their brains any more than drug-free party animals, according to researchers at Harvard Medical School. We're now arguing that many studies apparently showing that ecstasy can lead to memory loss and depression were flawed, as they did not take into account the rave culture associated with ecstasy use. They point out that lack of sleep and dehydration resulting from all-night dancing can cause cognitive problems on their own. Apparently, the Harvard team compared ecstasy users with non-users who had a history of all-night dancing with limited exposure to alcohol and drugs. Both groups completed tests for verbal fluency, memory, depression, and other factors, and the teams were not able to find a significant difference in cognitive performance between the two groups, even when they compared non-users with heavy users of the drug. Interesting. And while ecstasy may be less of a threat than, uh, than, than believed, commuting may be more. Researchers in Sweden took a look at the effect that commuting long distances has on uh, on families and noted that, uh, well, the effects are bad. The study in Sweden said that couples are 40% more likely to split up if one partner has a daily commute of longer than 45 minutes each way. They noted that commuting may seem like a positive thing because it means you don't have to uproot your family when you land a new job, but it can also be a strain on the relationship. About one in six Americans has a round-trip daily commute of 90 minutes, 
And 35 million people have to travel that long just one way, which is twice as many as we're doing that just 20 years ago. And while commuting often results in a higher salary and better job opportunities, experts say there are many ways living far from work puts pressure on a marriage. They point out that since long-distance commuters are most often men, their female partners tend to take on a disproportionate share of housekeeping duties, which is described as a common source of discord. I don't know. I'm glad they did this study over in Sweden. I look at the number of people doing these long commutes here in the U.S., you know, living in Sacramento, Stockton, working in the Bay Area, driving 110 miles, 140 miles one way. Think about this, people. If you're on the road for four hours a day, that's a sixth of your day. Fully 17% of your time in a car. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We need a short break. Don't go away.